We're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. I hope you will turn there with me. Just a paragraph there near the end of that chapter. We'll stay right there for the most part today. And next little bit, as I said earlier, thinking about how Peter responded to a question that he was asked at the end of his sermon. I'm glad you're here today, as I said earlier. Thank you so much for wanting to come out to be a part of a local assembly as we as a community of believers who confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, as we worship Him and celebrate what He's done for us. As we just finished communion a minute ago, that is the moment, that's the act we engage in every Sunday morning, every week, to proclaim to, not only to one another, but to the world that we believe in the resurrected Lord, one who died on the cross for us, that's their proclamation in communion. I hope that doesn't become a rote thing that we do each week, but rather that it's filled with meaning and symbolism as we get together and do that and, and worship. This, this period of time is an important hour because in it we encourage one another and we also proclaim Christ publicly. And I'm excited we get to do that. In Acts 2, this is a pretty oft-quoted text especially in churches of Christ, perhaps. We have spent some time in Acts 2 over the years. I want us to go back and look at this paragraph. This is, I guess this is in some ways a, a basic lesson, if you will. I hope you're good with that. I'm, I'm sure you are. Uh, to be honest, I wrestled with this a little bit as I'm thinking about preaching on Acts chapter 2. I, I had this internal dialogue and um, part of me was saying, well, the church has heard this before. You know, the, the church has heard sermons on Acts 2 quite a bit before. And then the other part of me that ultimately won out was, this is a message that needs to be taught on somewhat of a regular basis. You know, we have young people growing up in this church who need to hear some of the basics periodically. And, and so ultimately I decided this is... A very important part of Scripture, you know, and, and when we talk about Peter's response to their question, we're talking about a fundamental question of Christianity, particularly in how we respond to people outside of Christ. And so I think this is a, I hope it's a helpful thing to you. And uh, it's, it's something that we go back and we, once again, we examine some fundamentals of faith and this one having to do with the question about what do I need to do. Now, a little bit of background for a second. You may, may have been here last week. We had a lot of folks out of town last weekend on Easter Sunday, but we also had many of you here. And so those of you who remember, we looked at the first part of this, well, we looked at a big part of the chapter, but keying in on what Peter talked about concerning Christ, his subject was Christ. He preached about Jesus. And this was early on. You know, this was the, this was the day of Pentecost, the first, the first major holiday after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus seven weeks later. And so when Peter gets together and Peter and the other disciples get together in this assembly in Jerusalem, there are lots of people there. <coughs> there are thousands of people there. Thousands of people, who, many of whom had been present at the crucifixion of Jesus seven weeks earlier. They had said, crucify him, crucify him, be on, his blood be on us and our children. So this is that crowd. This is At least part of that crowd is here. And uh, Peter and the other apostles start speaking in languages that they didn't know. Dialects that were prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. They started speaking in these languages to the people from those particular regions... They heard them preach and teach in their own language. It was a miraculous thing that the Spirit was doing. And then many of the leaders of the, of the crowd, they said they're drunk. You know, this is just gibberish. They're just drunk. 
So Peter begins his sermon by saying, first of all, we have not been drinking too early in the morning. It's 9 o'clock, you know. Most folks don't start drinking until later in the day. It's not it. That's not, that's not the problem. But rather, what you're witnessing is something that God talked about a long time ago through the prophet Joel, 400, 500 years before. Joel had talked about this, that God's going to perform this miraculous thing. He's going to do something really big, and it's signifying a, a moment in history where God is, is renewing his relationship with people. So from that, on, from that point on during the sermon, he talks about Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus was attested to God by the wonderful things that he did, but you delivered him up. He was delivered up by wicked and lawless people. But having been delivered up and crucified and, and buried, God raised him up and God exalted him to the right hand of God the Father and he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, God has made the same Jesus whom you have crucified. You. That's a pretty pointed thing to say, isn't it? He's talking to this crowd and he says, Therefore, God has made this Jesus, the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's in verse 36. <clears throat> now, how's that going to go over? How do you think they're going to hear that? Just a little bit of a hint as to things to come. In Acts 7, Stephen, another preacher, he's going to preach a lesson in which he also points his finger at his, at his audience and he says to them, you rejected the only one who could save you. You're just like your forefathers who killed the prophets. And you have rejected the Christ. You have. If you've read the book of Acts, <coughs> you may remember their response. Do you remember this? Acts 7, near the end of the chapter. Acts 7, the crowd responded. It says they were cut to the heart. Here it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See that? Acts 2.37. In Acts 7, it says something similar to that. They were cut to the heart. So that's good. Maybe the same response. You've read Acts 7 before. Some of you haven't. You know it wasn't quite the same. Because in Acts 7, what happens is they end up saying, away with this guy. He doesn't deserve to live. They picked up stones, these big rocks, and took him outside the city. Put him down in a pit and stoned him, killed him. That was the end of that. How do people respond when they become convicted that they're guilty of crucifying Christ? I suppose it depends on what kind of heart they've got, doesn't it? Don't you think? Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. This, this Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the title of our lesson today. And I want us to look fairly closely for the next few minutes at what Peter says. What shall we do? What shall we do? What? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting to think. This is an apostle of God. How's he going to answer them? And we're going to look at verse 38 and following, but especially verse 38. Look what he says here. <coughs> and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm reading from the ESV. And I don't think there are any significant differences between this translation and any that you might have. So you probably have something very similar to that. You might have the word remission instead of forgiveness. You might have repent and let 
each one of you be baptized or something like that in the name of Christ. But I don't think there are any substantive differences in any of the translations here. So it's just, just important for us to look at what he says and think about what he means, you know. And, and there are different opinions about some of this. There are some different opinions about baptism in the religious world. And, and I want us to try not to oversimplify, but not to, over, not to make this too complex either. Uh, Peter's answer is pretty simple, and I think they understood what he said. And I think we can understand what he said, you know. He starts by saying repent. <laughs> you know what the word repent means. Uh, so it's a religious word, but it wasn't only a religious word. Mostly we just use it religiously now, but it, it hasn't always been just a religious word. It means to turn, uh, literally, to turn, to turn back. And, and usually when it's used in the New Testament, what it's talking about is, you know, I'm, I'm walking this way. And I turn and I and I walk the other way. It's a it's a 180 degree turn. You know, I'm I'm, I'm going one way. I, I turn the other way. It it has that physical kind of implication, but of course it's used in a spiritual kind of way. So it's that its connotation is it's this different mindset that 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 that's created in your heart because of some sort of con- conviction. Now you can talk about repentance for a while. A while. Let me let me sum up. What other passages teach about repentance, just so we understand what he said here. Repent means to change your mind. And it is changing your mind based on a conviction in your heart that results in a change of the direction that your life is going. So it has these different aspects to it. It has this intellectual component, this emotional aspect, this volitional component, which means I'm changing my will, and then it has this practical outworking. So I change my mind because there's something going on in my heart, and that leads me to change my will, my decision, and, and, and consequently, I'm, I'm going to live a different kind of life. I've got a new Lord, a new master, a new set of priorities. So when he says repent, I think he's specifically talking to them about what they had done in reference to Christ. He had just said, you crucified Christ. They're cut to their heart. What do we need to do? What do we need to do to make this right? And Peter says, you need to repent. So specifically to them, he is saying that with reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, you need to turn away from that kind of thinking that led you to do that. You need to be sorry. There's this, <coughs> this emotional aspect here. You need to be sorry for what you've done. They already were sorry. So I think there's more to it than that. It is your life needs to... Your life needs to be lived according to a different set of priorities. So repent, repent. Uh, I, I want us to think this morning about how we would share this with somebody who doesn't believe in Christ yet or somebody who does believe in Christ and needs to respond. Uh, and maybe, maybe in this assembly today, we've got folks who are thinking about this. What do I need to do? I believe in Christ, but I, I, don't, I don't feel like my relationship with him is what it ought to be. I want to identify with him in a public way or I want to become a Christian I want to be a part of a church. Uh, we've, we've probably got folks in different places on this spectrum today. So I want us to hear this wherever we are and think about what it means to us, whether we share this with someone, whether this is something that needs to be shared with us. And we're at a point where we need to do exactly what Peter says. The first thing here is to repent. Now, by the way, it's preceded by, though Peter doesn't mention it specifically, he presupposes that they believe in Christ, right? Don't you think? He presupposes that they believe the message. It says they were cut to the heart. And so when he says to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, he is presupposing that they have faith in Christ. And you see this 
elsewhere. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and so on. you got many other passages. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11. So we know that Peter's not saying you don't need to believe, that, Peter, that faith is unimportant, but rather he understands that they believe now what he said, but even given that, given that faith, given that, uh, and, and I don't know how deep their faith was, but that intellectual conviction that Jesus was Christ and they had killed him, they believed on some level. Peter says, that faith will lead you to change, to turn. <coughs> Becoming a Christian is not primarily about what happens back here. That's not the hard part. hard part is saying, I'm going to have a new Lord. That's the hard part. Hard part is saying, I'm guilty. Hard part is saying, it's not my parents' fault. It's not the world's fault. It's not my spouse's fault. I am guilty. I'm guilty. That's the hard part. Repentance. Hard part is saying, I'm guilty. I know it. And I'm going to let the Lord who created me to be my Lord. I'm going to turn my heart and life over to Him and let Him decide who I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. That's the hard part because that is relinquishing control. And that's hard for all of us to do. Because we all like to be in control. And it goes back to the fall. I mean, this is wired into us in some sense as a result of the fall. Adam and Eve wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to be the ones who determined their own destiny. Uh, eat the fruit, Satan said, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You'll be able to be your own God, your own determiner of what is right and what is wrong, your own, the, the one who determines your destiny. And so the big problem, the, the big issue between uh, someone who isn't a Christian and becoming a Christian is the fact that we do not want to relinquish control over our choices and over our own, um, our own convictions about what is right and what is wrong. We're, repenting means a lot, and that's the main thing that it means. Turning over control. Repent. If someone believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that faith has led him or her to say, I repent... I relinquish control. What we do back here is a foregone conclusion. A person will submit to baptism if a person has already in his or her heart submitted to the Lord Jesus and has relinquished control in his life or her life. Baptism will inevitably flow out of that conviction. That's important to understand. So I don't want to gloss over the word repent here. It's important. In fact, it's very important. <clears throat> but notice how, how Peter joins that imperative, repent with this be baptized imperative as well. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Be baptized. The word baptized is a word that is transliterated out of the Greek. You know, the, the Greek language had a word baptismo, baptizo. And it is a word that was... When, they, when it came time when they switched this to the English language, instead of translating it to what it meant, they, this is not the only word they did this with, but they did it with this one. They just took the Greek letters essentially and changed them to English letters and came up with a new word, baptize. 
Um, and and that's, that's important to understand because most words they translate. They, they take the meaning of the word and they translate it into English so that we understand what the word means. They, they didn't do that with this word for some reason. And it's important for us to understand that this word baptizo was a word that meant to immerse. And that's what it meant when Peter used it. It meant to immerse or to dip or to plunge. It was a word, common word they would use to wash, like, like of washing dishes. But it was used of dishes. It was talking about you take the dish and you baptizo the dish in the water. Not talking about sprinkling or pouring water on it, but rather you plunge it into the water and you dip it up. You know, that's, that's what the word meant. So it was, a, it was a word that meant to immerse. Would have helped out a lot if they had just gone ahead and translated it because it's been miscommunicated over the years. I wish they had taken it into English and translated it to immerse. It's a very good translation for us to read this. Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Later on, later on, it, it had a lot of different meanings, including like pouring water or sprinkling water or whatever. But the word baptizo in the first century when Peter used it, it was a word that meant immerse. And so it's pretty important for us to understand. And that's why we practice immersion and not any other form of of, um, of baptism is maybe practiced in some places. So it's important to understand. Repent and be baptized. Um, notice how he joins it together with repent. So he's got repentance and he's got, and he's got baptism here. Um, there's an important thing, and we've I've shared this illustration with you hundreds of times probably over the years. But just the whole idea, and you can go to Romans 6 for this, but the whole picture of what baptism does and what it symbolizes it just, it just makes the most sense for it to be an immersion experience because um, Romans 6, Paul paints this more, more clearly, but now, repentance is a death, right? It's a death. And Paul calls it that in Romans 6. He says, you die to self. You die to self. Repentance is, I'm dying, to be my own, I'm dying as my own Lord, and I am putting Christ as my Lord. So it's a, it's a death to self. Jesus died, right? Jesus died on the cross. They took his body and they put it in the tomb. It, they closed the door. It was immersed in the earth, right? It was immersed in the earth. They didn't lay his body down and sprinkle a little dirt on it. They didn't pour a little dirt on it. They, they immersed it in the earth. It, was, it went into the earth, right? So Jesus died, and it went into the earth. It was immersed. And then on Sunday morning, on that resurrection day, Jesus Christ's body was taken out of the tomb, and he walked upright again. And so that image, you see, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Paul says, that's what we do in baptism. <coughs> we repent, we die. What do you do with dead folks? You bury dead folks. You bury them. And so you see the beautiful symbolism of immersion, right? Of, of, of going down into the, we say, the watery grave. You know, you, you, you take the body and you go down. This is a burial. That's the significance of it. But just as Jesus was resurrected, we raise a person up. Paul says to walk in newness of life. So it's just a beautiful image. You know, it's, um, and I hope you can see the connection there in, in the water and why God chose to put it this way. To repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. <clears throat> you know, the, this, is, this isn't a difficult part of the verse, really. Uh, for the forgiveness of sins. The word for is a word that means, translates a word 
that is a word that looks ahead. It has a, almost always, it has this forward look. Um, it's, a, it's a preposition that, that, that connects two ideas, uh, but the preceding one is looking ahead to. Sometimes it can be translated like to obtain, or <coughs> some translations put it unto, to help us to see that, that the repentance and the baptism are looking ahead to something. It's just pretty important here. Repentance, repent and be baptized unto, unto, looking ahead. You can, you can point an arrow from the repentance and baptism to the remission of sins. And that's, it's important to understand the way Peter phrases this. So, for the remission of sins. Um, it's really not hard to see here why Peter phrases it like this. Or it's not hard to see what he means by this. We would really have to have something else in the New Testament, some other strong teaching elsewhere to make us think that the remission of sins uh, is disconnected from the baptism. You'd have to have something else. Uh, and, and, and if you had another passage that says, you know, that uh, forgiveness of sins takes place separate and apart from or before baptism, or if you had some teaching that in the New Testament that said, you know, baptism cannot have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins or something like that, then you might try to read this passage differently. But absent that, this is just a simple way of reading the text. It's, this is what it would normally mean unless we've got some reason to believe otherwise about it. I don't know if that's a big deal to you or not, but just to understand, this is simple language. He's not using some sort of special thing that you have to translate it in a, a Church of Christ way or whatever or try to you know, put some special kind of meaning on this. Truth is, this is the way the verse would be, would be read, and we would only read it differently if we want to, you know, if you, if you want to try to read it differently, if we have some other reason uh, for, for, for wanting to do that. Some passages are hard to understand, but this one, the language is pretty simple. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the remission of your sins. In Peter's mind, I don't know of any other way to read this other than to say he's connecting this all together. We believe in Christ, therefore we repent and are baptized so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. And this, and this act and this experience of coming to Christ, it is one that culminates in forgiveness of sins. Not culminates, but it, it, it results in forgiveness of sins culminating in a life that's dedicated to Christ. And, uh, and so I just want you to see the simplicity of the, of the passage here. Peter, in Peter's mind, he wouldn't be thinking that, all right, I want to communicate to them that they're baptized for some other reason or, or that they, they were saved earlier and now they're going to get baptized or it just doesn't make sense for Peter to phrase it the way he does so simply if he's got some other thing in mind about baptism, you know? So you repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, well, just one or two things more about the forgiveness of sins part. The word forgiveness means to remit, literally means to remit or to send away, uh, to, to be released from. And so it's this idea of your sins being, to use Paul's language elsewhere, uh, to be washed away. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, Paul, at this point called Saul, he's an unbeliever, or he's a non-Christian, and he comes to faith in Christ, and God's messenger says to him, Saul, what are you waiting on? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's Acts twenty two sixteen, by the way, is where that is. And in that text, it, it's just really clear how 
how Ananias, that's, his, that's the fellow God sent to Paul, that's how he puts it. What are you waiting on? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul is connecting the washing of water in baptism with the washing of sins. So you've got these different ties that, that are pretty neat. The last thing he says here is, or that we're going to look at, is that you may receive the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Two basic possibilities here. <coughs> well, receive the gift of the Spirit. It could be that the gift of the Spirit is something the Spirit gives. Right? You receive the gift of the Spirit. You receive something that the Spirit gives you. It would be more common, though, and more consistent to interpret the words here as being the gift of the Spirit is the Spirit Himself. And so when He says, you repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Spirit, uh, it, I believe that Peter is saying that you receive the Spirit. In fact, if you look in three chapters down below, Acts 5.32, uh, Paul says this, or Peter says this, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So I believe that what Peter is saying in his sermon here in Acts 2 is that when you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit of God. You receive the Holy Spirit of God who indwells His people corporately in the church, but also in, He indwells us individually as Christians. So God's Spirit living within us, working through His Word, in working through us to bring about His will to accomplish what He wants to in us. And He helps us to live the Christian life. So it's just a beautiful thing that Peter says in Acts 2. What do we do? What do we do? Being a Christian in some ways is, is hard. <clears throat> Becoming a Christian is hard sometimes. Because... We come from different backgrounds, different lifestyles. It's difficult when one's family is opposed to Christianity, is opposed to Christ. And one has to turn his or her back on family in order to become a Christian. It's hard because of our own sin. Sin indwells us, gets a hold of us, takes over us. And it's hard for us to have the conviction to say, I have made a mess of my life. And I want to do what's right. Hard. It's hard. But it's not hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. It may be hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. What God calls us to do is to become convicted that Jesus is God's Son. Once we're convicted of that... It's just interesting. It's amazing to me how it all just flows together. It's not, <coughs> I don't really like the idea of viewing it as, as steps. You know, steps, I think that connotes something that's at least inconsistent with some things that New Testament teaches. <coughs> but rather, when, when you come to faith in Christ, it's just all, this, all these things happen. You, you believe in Jesus Christ. And once you believe in Jesus, you recognize that it was your sins that put him on the cross. And that brings about this overwhelming, this sorrow, this conviction of my own guilt. And you die to self. And Peter says, you make this public. You demonstrate this in a public way by, by confessing Christ. By, not just with your lips, uh, 
Acts 8 talks about confession, but, but with baptism, you confess it with baptism. So you trust in Christ, you recognize what you've done, you're buried in water, you're raised up to walk in newness of life. That's a response to the gospel. It all comes together. If you believe in Christ, you're going to be, you're going to be sorry for what you've done. If you believe in Christ and you're convicted of your own guilt, baptism won't be a stumbling block. It'll be something you are eager to do as an expression of a heart that's been captivated by God's Spirit. And you want God's Spirit to live within you, and so you obey the gospel. It's a beautiful thing, and maybe there's someone today who needs to become a Christian. We've talked about it a lot today. I pray that you will. If you have questions about this, let's study the Bible together. Let's, let's study together. We, I, and many others here would be thrilled to do that. If you're ready to become a Christian, though, we invite you to do that today. If you need to come home today, you know, your life, you, you did this a decade ago, months ago, decades ago. But you've taken your eyes off of Christ. Come back to us today. Come back to Him today. Let's stand and sing if you need to respond.